night. Good morning again. A little short on singing this morning, but we do have the Lord's Supper coming, and that's why uh, some, a lot more of the songs will come at the end of the service. I enjoy singing with you, and I know you do too. Well, it's been a couple years since this memory runs to my brain. Towards the end of COVID, we were sitting around on a Friday in my house on pins and needles. My sister had been instructed, hey, if your phone rings from a number you don't know, you should probably pick it up. Now, we have a habit of screening calls we don't know, right? (laughs) But my sister picked up the phone. Hi, Cindy, Governor Holcomb here. How you doing? You don't get that call every day. You see, my sister, who had been the deputy prosecuting attorney in Marion County's office for many, many years after graduating from law school, had been nominated and is now a judge in Marion County's Superior Court. Great thing for us. Just kind of a wonderful, fun day. To be a judge, I'd never really thought about the ramifications. Whew. Loaded word, judge. (laughs) Title of my sermon this morning, don't judge me. (laughs) That's kind of the mantra of our culture. Who's judging me now? You ever thought about what it would be like to be a judge? To have the responsibilities? To have the privileges? To have the burden? Well, that's what our text is about this morning. We just read it together. If you were just glancing at it, if you have your Bible open or your phone app there in front of you, it's not hard to figure out why this emphasis about judging becomes the primary factor here. Paul says this is how one should regard us. Is regard a synonym for judge? This is how how you should view me. View us. It's a small thing, I should be judged by you. You see that repeated word. In any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against me. Does that sound like charges? Against? What do you have against me? But I'm not thereby acquitted. Another legal term. Wouldn't that be great to be being judged and to be said acquitted? Not guilty. It's the Lord who judges me. We're told don't pronounce judgment before the Lord comes. The Lord will bring to light. That sounds like evidence and testimony, doesn't it? We're going to bring this out. Things that were hidden in in darkness. The Lord will disclose the motives, the purposes. We're often worried about motives in court. The purposes of the heart. And each one will receive their commendation. So you see, it's not too hard to figure out what the main point of this passage is, is it? I mean, when you have that many repeated words and that many repeated themes in five verses, I think you can see that very, very clearly. In verses 1 and 2, Paul is going to give us specific instructions regarding church leaders, church teachers. And then in verses 3 through 5, Paul's going to show us three, I don't know, applications, implications for our lives based on this teaching. Now, having declared that right up front, you probably sat down and said, well, I'm going to get my phone out, 
because I am not a church leader and I'm not a church teacher. So why did I even come this morning if this passage is for that? What about it for me? Well, I assure you there is a lot here, a lot. One of my uh, favorite teachers is a young man, was Charles Ware, a pastor here in Indianapolis. He always said, what God wants to model in the pulpit, he wants to produce in the pew. And I thought about that. Yeah, yeah. If church leaders and teachers are supposed to be, loaded statement for any person to stand here and say, so I say this with great humility, if church leaders and teachers are to be models of Christian character, then what God wants to model in the pulpit, he wants to produce in the pew. Does that make sense logically? So by inference, you could pick up any one of these things and benefit from them. And secondly, I will tell you as I've studied this this week, these principles are absolutely crucial for every Christian to understand in order to live a successful Christian life. And so while I am going to preach the intended intent of the passage regarding church leaders and teachers, I promise you there are broad applications for all Christians at all times. So what again was Paul's big idea? What should you be listening for this morning while I'm speaking? Here's the big idea. Paul rebukes the Corinthian church. They are judgmental. He rebukes them for being presumptuously judgmental and critical towards their church leaders and teachers. Men like Paul, Apollos, Peter, and others. For us this morning, we need to learn how, when, and where judging is okay and how, when, and where judging is forbidden. I'm often quoted, if I say anything strong, uh, regarding judgmental issues, I'm quoted the words of Jesus, judge not, lest you be judged. <laughs> As though that is some kind of categorical statement and there are no judgments in the Bible. <laughs> we must learn how, when, and where it's okay to judge. What are the contexts and dynamics that allow us to feel right and know that God is affirming it? And, friends, God help us how, when, and where judgmentalism is forbidden. Yes, we sometimes are too judgmental. This is a big deal in our culture, even the title of my sermon. Don't judge me. Just rolls off the tongue. Judgmentalism flows out of an awareness of what others think about you. One of the things we'll see here this morning the funniest summary of judgment, I think I've shared this in a sermon a couple years ago, uh, that I ever heard and helped me more, for, not from a biblical standpoint, but just helped me start thinking about this well, reminded me that from the time you're 15 to 35, all you care about is what everybody else thinks about you. And maybe from the time you're 35 to 55, you start working really hard not to care what other people think about you. And when you get to 55, you realize... Nobody cares about you. <laughs> they are so worried. They view it through the same lens. And it is this process of us trying to figure this out and handle ourselves well. But we must admit, we have to tell the truth to ourselves and to one another. We live on the evaluation storyline, the performance treadmill. We do care deeply what others think of us. We evaluate others. We do it based on their pedigree, their style, their position, their influence, their power, their productivity, their output. Sure, it 
often we evaluate people with those kinds of external indicators. And even though we live within it, I know we're all tired of it. I don't want to live that way. I don't want to live for you. I don't want to live with my own self-criticism. Deep inside, we long and pray that there is another way. The cycle is good to us in those few moments that we know we are performing at a high level. We are doing well. We are accepted. But it's not possible to maintain. We end up being paralyzed by other people's judgments of us. The survival of the fittest may be okay as a textbook philosophy. I can't live that way. I don't want to live that way. It is an unworkable approach to life. I do not want the crushing weight of the microscope of 200 opinions. We are dying for someone to come into the mess, to see us for who we are, accept us for who we really are, no performance necessary. Let's read the text. Verses 1 and 2. Remember the context. How do we view each other? How do we view church leaders? What's Paul doing? What's Apollos doing? What's Cephas doing? Now Paul makes some declarative statements here. This is how you should regard us. This is how you should view us. As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, a word we don't use very often, maybe we would say, and on top of that, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. There's some great language here, so many good lessons. I told you that verses 1 and 2 are kind of his straightforward teaching. He's going to give it to us, and then in verses 3, 4, and 5, there's a little bit of implication, some application, some things we can think about to help us understand these couple of verses. So Paul concludes that the Corinthians should view him and the Christian leaders in a couple of ways. First, Christian leaders, all of us, should be viewed as servants of Christ. This word servant denotes a domestic servant, a person that served in a variety of ways, often exalting those whom they served. Paul and the other leaders were servants of Christ. They did the will of Christ with humility servant doesn't sound sounds humble doesn't sound glamorous oh wait a minute i could think about i think the level of the servant has something to do with the person who the servant is serving yes if somebody were to come to my house and serve it's not a big deal but what if you were the white house chief of staff Oh, well, that kind of changes the way you view that opportunity of service, doesn't it? I've taken to this language in my speaking to other people. Sometimes you're in a relationship, someone is helping you, even yesterday at a basketball tournament. I remember saying to each official, thank you for serving us today. Servants of Christ, who is Christ, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. If you think the White House Chief of Staff has a little prestige to be servants of Christ, friends, we are blessed. 
and not only servants of Christ, stewards. Stewards of the mysteries of God. Well, what is a steward? Steward's a little different than a servant, one employed in a large household, someone to manage an estate, to manage domestic concerns, such as the supervision of servants, the collection of rents, the keeping of accounts. You're given a stewardship. We might use a term uh, different today, a manager, one who actively directs affairs. Might be an employee on a ship, an airline, a bus, a train who manages the provision of food, tends to the passengers. These are stewards. In Paul's day, stewards were high-ranking servants. They were trusted with the oversight of households. They were especially responsible for the management and distribution of household resources. And so Paul uses this office as an analogy for church leadership because he stewarded the secret things, the mysteries, the mysteries of God. So Paul says, I'm a servant of Christ and I'm a steward of the mysteries of God. The term mysteries describes the redemptive grace of God that was kept secret for a long time in a sense from the Old Testament, meaning that we did not fully understand who Jesus was, did not know his name, did not fully understand the redemptive impact of all of the promises, but they were all there. But they have now been finally revealed in Christ. Praise the Lord. And God commissions church leaders to bring out this great treasury of mystery of Christ, of revelation to the church. Paul spoke of it in chapter 2. He said, we preach Christ crucified. From the Old Testament. Paul and Apollos are stewards of the mystery. And as I said, mystery. Paul uses this in Romans, Corinthians, Ephesians, Colossians to the Thessalonians, to Timothy. He talks about the preaching of Jesus Christ to the Romans according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret through long ages but now is revealed. Later in this epistle, he will say to the Corinthians, I'm going to tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. I could give you lots more, but in Colossians, he talks about the mystery which has been hidden for ages and generations, but now has been revealed to God's saints. We have this mystery, and this is what servants of God and stewards of Christ do. We might say then, for Paul Mystery is the spiritual knowledge that God has revealed. And go even a step further to say that for Paul, being entrusted with these ministries, with these mysteries, implies both responsibility and stewardship. Can you feel the weight of this? Paul's saying, hey, I mean, he's painting a target on him and Apollos and on Cephas and on the other leaders. This is how you should regard us. We are servants of God. And we hold the mystery of Christ as stewards. Now we all have this. God entrusted these mysteries to Paul and Apollos. At that time in the early church, 
mining out these treasuries of the Old Testament and with the New Testament not yet being written, it was a way, it was a way heavier stewardship in a sense relative to the embarrassment of biblical riches we have. Yes, friends? You can feel the weight of it at that time. In the next letter to the Corinthians, Paul will say, we have this treasure in jars of clay. The treasure being the gospel, the clay jars being Paul and his co-workers. Now what we're going to begin to see here is that Paul and, the, and Apollos and the other church leaders can expect, if they are stewards, to be held accountable. Some of you are probably ahead of me there realizing that if you're a steward, you've been entrusted with someone by a greater manager. So we should expect that God will also hold people accountable who help or hinder the ministry of the gospel. Those are the facts. And then he gave a little bit more information in verse 2 about what makes a good servant. What makes a good steward? Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. They must prove faithful. Why would Paul say this? Well, you know, what had the Corinthians been valuing? Eloquence, flash in the pan. I'll say to my kids sometimes, you know, I care a lot more about the steak than the sizzle. Paul rejected this standard for evaluating leaders in one another. He and all leaders and all of us should only be evaluated by one standard. Our fidelity and faithfulness to the gospel ministry of Jesus Christ. This is the stewardship that we have been given. If a steward's job is to manage faithfully what the master has put him in charge of, what the master has entrusted to him, then the standard of success for Paul is not worldly views of wisdom, likes on Facebook, Google Analytics, people's perception. I say often to my students in student ministry, do you want to be righteous or just have people think you are? Is there a difference? Do you want to be holy or just have people believe you are? Do you want to be honest or just trick people? Successful Servants and stewards of the ministry and mystery of the gospel of Christ understand it is a bottom line, simple thing, faithfulness. We faithfully do what the master asks us to do. So summary of verses 1 and 2. We have been entrusted with the job and we must faithfully carry it out. We must value the gospel ministry and faithfulness to it above everything else. And now three little thoughts that either combat enemies to this or help facilitate this. Three little implications regarding judgment. The judgment of man, self-judgment, and God's judgment. That's what Paul talks about next. 
the first thing he says, I want to talk to you about the judgment of man. I love the way Paul cites this in verse 3. I don't talk this way. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you (laughs) or any human court. The judgment of man. I wish I could... Can you feel the freedom in this statement? Now it could be flippant. It could be rudely exhibited. I don't care what you think, right? You could go overboard with this. My dad always said, I think, there's a ditch on both sides of the road. But the freedom with which Paul now dismisses these people who are criticizing and attacking and judging him But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. We could spend an entire message here talking about the fear of man. The fear of man is what the Bible calls it. When we're young, we call it peer pressure. When we get a little older, some people say it's called people-pleasing. If you're an adult and it's really bad, they put a label on you. They call it codependency. The Bible calls it the fear of man. And in Proverbs, Solomon says the fear of man brings a snare. Now, there have been all kinds of books written by this. Dr. Ed Welch has been maybe one of the prominent ones. And I've got a gift for somebody who wants to come get this after church this morning. I'm on a campaign right now because I'm going on sabbatical, so I'm trying to clean my office. And uh, I also went through and I rearranged my bookshelf, and I realized I have multiple copies of too many good books. So this morning, just a small attempt. I've been giving away lots of books. Uh, This book is called When People Are Big and God Is Small. And it is a quick run through the scripture about how people think about you. It is a wonderful, wonderful book. It has helped me. So I'm just going to leave it up here. And whoever, uh, don't fight each other, but you know, first one, you know, whatever. Seems like in some ways, the Corinthian church had turned into some kind of radio talk show. And the Corinthian church, Church members were just the callers calling in, sharing their rating of Paul and the other leaders as talking heads before they had them. It's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. Social media doesn't help with this at all. This awareness of others and visibilities and likes and analytics. and I Notice I didn't say it was evil. I said it doesn't help. Okay. Awareness to it, just commenting on it, I think is very, very helpful. Paul contrasts the standards of leadership that the Corinthian church had endorsed. And in response to all that they say, Paul says he doesn't care if the Corinthians or any human court judged him. Only God could know how faithful Paul had been to the mysteries that God had revealed to him. And so only God can properly evaluate Paul's performance. In fact, we're going to see in a second, he's going to go even a step further and say, I don't even judge myself. (laughs) It's quite a statement. Now, that doesn't mean that he never evaluated his own life. It doesn't mean that he never listened to the evaluations of other people. Do you understand that? 
but it meant that he would not ever replace Christ as his ultimate judge. I think the best way to think about this, because you become so careless in this and say, think, I, even as preaching this, I could, I could give the idea, you shouldn't care what people think. Well, that would be kind of antithetical to the Scripture too, right? I think a better way to say this is, you should care so much what God thinks that you are not enslaved to the opinions and thoughts and fears of others. And I don't know how great a job we all do with that. We should care so much what God thinks of us that we feel this way, that it is a very, not a non-thing, it's a very small thing. Small must be in contrast to something else, and I think in Paul's mind, and you're going to see this in verse 5, the large thing is what God cares about and that Paul cares about God. Second part of verse 3, he goes on and says, in fact, talk about self-judgment, the role of conscience. I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. Conscience, before I forget, cleaning my office still. Uh, one I don't have up here, uh, a, a book I'd commend highly. I don't have any extra copies. You can find one on eBay or Amazon. They're out of print. It's The Vanishing, Vanishing Conscience by John MacArthur. It's a really, really good book. But the one I have here is by Andy Nassali, uh, a, a younger author. And this is a wonderful book just called Conscience. And I don't have all time. I'm cheating this morning. I'm giving you books instead of... Uh, instead of uh, preaching longer than 40 minutes <laughs> you're welcome the role of conscience comes up here it's beautiful conscience can be too weak or too strong Walt Disney had it wrong Jiminy Cricket may have been cute but the idea of always let your conscience be your guide is not infallible not as always wise to listen to conscience. Martin Luther said that. It's unwise to go against conscience. But we must, not re- we must realize that conscience is not infallible. Conscience acts on what it thinks is right and wrong. Jonah was asleep in the boat while there was a big storm. He seems greatly at peace while the rest of the world is coming apart. And who was guilty? Jonah. Conscience is not infallible. Sometimes conscience will be overactive. One of, the, one of my favorite memories of all time is a dear friend and her husband who came to Lori and I's house and stunningly declared to us that she was struggling with doubts about her salvation. I think a lot of times people are just way too flippant with this and they say, well, all right, no, you're fine, you're fine, you're fine, you're fine, you're fine. But God gives us a lot of tools to deal with that. And one of them is the book of 1 John. That we could know that we have life. So I just started reading 1 John with my friend and his wife. And every time we came across one of these if-then statements, I would ask her, is this generally true of your life? And then I would ask her husband, is this generally true of her life? For example, 
If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. And I said, friend, do you claim to have fellowship with God? Do you walk in the light? I think so. Husband, is this true of your wife? Yes. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friend, is it true that when sin is confronted to you that you confess it, repent of it? I think so. Husband, is this true? Yes. And I went through all the way to first, all the way to the first time. But listen to this beautiful passage. When we got to this, we just all started weeping together. And God used his word to help her understand an overactive conscience. By this, we shall all know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. And God knows everything. Conscience can be a sailing and conscience can be asleep. The word of God and his judgments are what are best. In fact, uh, Loveless said, many rely on their sanctification for their justification, drawing their assurance of, a, of acceptance with God from their sincerity, their recent religious performance, or the relatively infrequency of conscience, willful disobedience. Translation, you love the performance junkiness too. You feel closer and connected to God if you're performing well and you feel distanced and pushed back from Him when you, as Loveless said, do not have, when have poor recent religious performance or perhaps, sadly, have frequent conscious willful disobedience. It's a role of conscience. Paul says, I can't even judge myself. Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful and above all things wicked. Who can know it? In this age of expressive individualism and self-enlightenment, friends, this is not a popular message, but one that we should all remind ourselves of. We are not the arbiters of truth. In fact, we are flawed fully. The Apostle Paul was unwilling to judge himself and even said, even though I'm not aware of anything against myself, I am not thereby acquitted. I could not say I'm not guilty just because I don't feel guilty. For goodness sake, sometimes I'm speeding and I don't feel guilty. I am guilty. I just don't feel it. Well, quickly, what's the last thought here? Not man's judgment, not self-judgment. How about God's judgment? What a good way to end. The end of verse 4. <clears throat> it is the Lord who judges me. Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. The glorious paradox of Christianity is that if we pretend our sin does not exist, it will haunt us all our lives. This is an unbelievable paradox. 
in the Christian faith. If we pretend our sin does not exist, it will haunt us all of our lives. But if we will admit and confess our sin, Jesus will take it from us. Praise the Lord. Seeking God's approval, not our own. Paul admitted and said his conscience was clear. But this does not support his innocence. It doesn't matter if Paul thought he was blameless, just as it didn't matter if the Corinthians thought he was blameworthy. It's the Lord who judges. Paul didn't reject the appropriate use of discernment between good and evil people. In fact, and I'm kind of glad I'm leaving on sabbatical, but the week after I'm gone, Paul, Pastor Brian's going to preach a message where he pronounces judgment on sexually immoral people in the church. Don't judge me. It can't mean that. In chapter 6, he's going to say, what is wrong with you people dragging each other into court? Don't you have people in the church who can make judgments? <laughs> yes, someone has to judge. The next verse makes clear, Paul is speaking, what is the ultimate judgment in our lives? It is the judgment of one's eternal destiny. What matters to Paul is whether God on the last day finds him faithful. It's a small thing to Paul what the Corinthians think. It's a small thing to Paul what any other humans think. It's a small thing to Paul what he thinks. Paul could assess himself incorrectly. So the conclusion that Paul draws has to do with timing. Well, the Lord hasn't ultimately judged yet. Why should I? <laughs> A little grace. I think of verses like uh, Romans chapter uh, 13, 12. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Sometimes I have to say to my children, stay in your lane. <laughs> Back off. The rest of this chapter is going to show the Corinthians thought Paul evidently low and foolish. Paul has to say many things to them. I think in the context here, Paul's defending himself through his faithfulness to God so that when Paul pronounces judgments on the Corinthians to come, they will accept his authority as he addresses their problems because that is what's coming next. Just a series of judgments from the Apostle Paul into the lives of the Corinthian believers. Paul knows God will flawlessly judge his servants. Flawlessly. As I said before, this doesn't mean that a person should never judge himself. Paul himself wrote, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus is in you? Unless you fail to meet the test. Paul does not mean that you should never judge church leaders. A couple of verses that are rarely ever read, I think, from 1 Timothy 5, straight out there for all of us to see. Don't accept a charge against an elder except on the presence of two or three witnesses. So don't take flippant charges against church leaders and teachers. But those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of everyone so that everyone may fear sinning. We're not above I think in Matthew 7 when Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged, it doesn't mean don't ever judge for any reason, but it actually means don't be judgmental in and of yourself. 
In the same way in this passage, don't pronounce judgment doesn't mean don't judge for any reason, but in this case it means don't presumptuously judge. What is wrong is not judging, but instead self-righteous, premature, individualistic judging according to the world's standards rather than God's. I have said to people before when they say, don't judge me, I have said, I'm not, I wouldn't, I'm, God is judging you. And that is the safest place for any of us to be. And if we are, I mean, what are the Ten Commandments but ten judgments, correct? Someone steals something and says, don't steal. And you say, that's wrong, don't judge me. Well, I gotta tell you, it's not me. <laughs> We're on very safe ground there. I want to invite the praise team and the leadership team uh, to prepare for the Lord's Supper. We're going to sing a few songs and celebrate the gospel here. So I'm finishing up. Uh, there are just some final main points here. Some things you should take away from here and, and understand. Celebrate. Then I want to point out one thing in the text that I, uh, that I skipped that I think is one of the best things here. We don't belong to ourselves. We are servants of Christ and stewards of the gospel. You are a servant of Christ. And God has given to you the mystery of the treasury of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The service performed by God's people should be a service of faithfulness to God. And this is a tough thing for us to manage all the time. It's an internal thing. I don't know why you're here. I don't know why you're serving. I don't know why you serve the way you serve, where you serve. No one does. God does. I believe that God cares way more about motives than we do. And I think we need to really give a lot of thought to that. Only God is authorized to judge the integrity of a person's faithfulness. God will issue approval and disapproval at the appointed time. And making distinctions and issuing judgments about other believers, faithfulness, maturity, whether they deserve, deserve esteem or anything like that, that's not for the Corinthians to do. It's not for us to do. God will do that. This was a courtroom, right? You remember where we started? Judgment, acquittals, guilt, how we regard evidence, disclosures. What's really cool are two things. It's a surprising end to this. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty evil. My heart is sinful. And when I hear about God's judgment and that it's coming and that it's coming flawlessly, i got to tell you, I tend to view that as a negative thing. Like an oppressive thing. Can you feel that? It's me. I, you may not. I, I do. This is me. What does the last expression say? Then... Each one will receive. First time I read it, I thought I read it wrong. It says commendation. I Freudian slipped. I read condemnation. <laughs> it doesn't say 
At that time, you all get your condemnation. (laughs) What a surprising ending. It says you get your commendation. You're well done, good and faithful servant. Back up. How does that even happen? How can that be possible? At the end of verse 4, when, and this leads right into communion, so I'll be done. When it says it's the Lord who judges me, you know what that word judges is? It's the word justifies. It's the Lord who says not guilty. You can't acquit yourself because we have been justified with God through Jesus Christ. We have peace with God the Father. Your greatest need is not to impress anybody else or even to seek the approval of God on your own. It is not by works of righteousness that we are saved, but according to His mercy. It is the Lord who can say not guilty because of the blood of Jesus. And we are uh, just, it, it ought to just warm our hearts to think that out of a text that is just so oppressive, the great news is just front and center that the Lord Jesus justifies and offers commendation. Thank you, Father. May your word go deep into our hearts and grow. In Jesus' name, amen.